Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only. Um, we're recording this episode live at, at the RISE Consortium's The Future of Resilient Infrastructure and Energy Security event. I'm super excited today to be talking to a good friend of mine, the amazing Don Lippert. Don uh, has been called the Bruno Mars of Clean Energy, which I think is an awesome uh, title, thanks to our friends at Kilowatt Analytics. Um, she is the CEO of Elemental Accelerator. They're a startup program that each year funds 15 to 20 companies up to a million dollars each to improve systems that impact the planet and the people's lives for energy, water, agriculture, transportation, and beyond. Uh, Don, welcome to Experts Only. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to see you, John. It's so great to see you. So you have such an interesting background, right? You've, you went to school at Yale. You've been working around the world on environmental and energy issues. You worked at Booz Allen in their alternative energy practice. And you've really built a fascinating career addressing the issues of climate change. What in your background really got you interested in addressing these problems? It's such a good question. I think from the beginning, I was really when I was working at Booz Allen, I actually got to work on both the policy side and the technology side. So I worked on the first launch of RPE, which, as you know, you know, is the DARPA yeah. for energy projects. And so I got really interested in sort of this nexus of what's happening in public policy and sort of these macro ideas around transformation. And then what's happening with new technology and where do those two bump into each other and intersect? And so that's really what we've been exploring and building at Elemental over the years. Yeah. And so where from that experience, you know, what helped prepare you to lead Elemental? We'll talk, <laughs> we'll talk more about what the organization does in a second, but just from your personal perspective. I think it's the ability to just learn and grow and change. I mean, this sector has changed so much. I started Elemental about a dozen years ago. And to sort of think of, you know, people talk about the solar coaster and the solar industry. Um, but if you think about the innovation roller coaster, it's been even more pronounced. Um, there have been lots of dips, lots of learning, and new approaches to things. So I think it's just really being willing to try things, being willing to fail, and learn from our mistakes and learn from our CEOs and get better as we go. Yeah, not to mention just an incredible influx now of things like ESG capital and the interest around climate tech is at, a, at an all-time high right now, which is super exciting. So for yeah. folks that, that are not familiar with Elemental, for um, you, you lead an incredible group with a mission to redesign the systems at the root of climate change. Can you talk a little bit about what your organization does and maybe some case studies in some of the amazing companies you're investing in? Sure. I'd be happy to. That's my favorite thing to talk about. So um, our <laughs> <Okay>. mission, <laughs> as you said, working at the to change systems at the root of both climate change and social inequity. Um, and to change the systems sort of not separately, but actually work on them together as they're deeply interrelated. Um, so, so far, we've invested in 117 portfolio companies and alongside investing in them, and we're a nonprofit. So it gives us the ability to invest for impact first and financial return second. And alongside investing in the companies, we actually fund projects with most of them. So we've funded over 70 projects around the world um, with emerging technology companies and commercialization in the industries you mentioned. So energy, water, and many of, of the things that have come up in resilience today, mobility, agriculture and circular economy, which includes carbon and materials. So out of those projects, one of the things that really makes Elemental unique is getting really close to the ground with our companies 
and really close to implementation and deployment and figuring out what's actually working with customers, whether they're utilities or government or other businesses and what's actually working commercialization on the ground and what's not. And so it's enabled us to build a library of pattern recognition over the last dozen years of how to commercialize technologies across these various sectors. Um, so across the companies we've worked with, we've awarded over $40 million and the companies have raised over $4 billion yeah, in follow-on funding. So about 100x there. A couple of the companies, just to highlight that I'm pretty excited about right now, and I think are particularly interesting in the in the context of this conversation, um, one is a company called Jupiter Intelligence. So they're a company that does risk Can I ask modeling. Questions? Just yeah. while you're going into this, Go for yeah. just for a very basic question, in the life cycle of these companies, can you talk about where you're investing? Like this is really early yeah. stage stuff, right? It's actually not as early as you would typically think. In some ways, Accelerator is a misnomer in that way. So when we first started the Accelerator, we were starting to fund projects. And so actually, we fund companies that have working prototypes. They usually are in the market. They have a few things in the field. And where we get really good and really specific is to start scaling their commercialization work. So when companies have a product, they have a technology that's working well, and then they're ready to go into a new market to um, bring a new product to market, to try a new part of their business model, or to take a leap they otherwise wouldn't be able to take, that's where we often come in with funding. And many times we actually bring in the customers. And then we fund about half the project, sort of de-risk it, and give the customer the carrot to bring it forward and get it over the line. Yeah. And, and for folks that aren't as familiar in the finance space, the critical need there is that a lot of investors won't fund that space, right? So you can either get really early startup money to prove your idea or you need to have customers. But that critical gap is really critical, really important to get a lot of these climate tech companies uh, to really thrive. So it's yeah, so important. that's exactly right. And I would say the other critical part of it is that it's it's pretty hard to find capital to put things in the ground early where there's still a lot of risk. So right. oftentimes for the projects that we're funding, we're trying to create a blueprint that then can be funded by debt or funded by project finance or asset finance or other kinds of sort of more vanilla capital so that companies can really fuel their growth um, as opposed to just funding all this on venture capital, which is the lesson that you know we learned 10 plus years ago in this space. Yeah, absolutely. And go back to Jupiter. So you, you started talking about Jupiter and was one of the companies. I didn't mean to cut you Yeah. Off. No, so a couple of companies I'm interested in, I think really intersect well with this resilience space. Jupiter is a company that enables really actionable decisions on climate change, and they reduce risk for infrastructure that can be heavily affected by climate change. So, you know, we heard in, in earlier today about really trying to understand the risk of climate change, whether it's drought, flooding, major storm, fire. And so Jupiter gets really granular on that. So the project that we funded with them, for instance, is working with Hawaiian Electric um, in Hawaii to say, okay, so we have an island. We have so much infrastructure, much of it's at risk from various climate risks, but which of it is most at risk? And so we can say this substation you know, has this percent chance of being underwater within the next four or five years, right? So actually getting to that granular level of risk enables the utility to then put sensors on those key pieces of critical infrastructure and really target where some of this hardening work should happen, as opposed to just sort of looking at the whole system and saying, wow, this is going to be really expensive to understand right. what to do. So that's the kind of company that, that I think from the resilience perspective is bringing, you know, all kinds of PhDs and Nobel Prize winners and science to bear in a new technology platform that can be really helpful in resilience spending, which, you know, can <laughs> be really significant over time if we're not really targeted about it. And I think people are waking up to this after the pandemic as well. I mean, Jupiter's seen their 
traction increased 10x in Q1 2021 compared to a year ago. Um, So I think people are saying, okay, so we had this pandemic. What are the other sort of unexpected things that we can start planning for now that are on the horizon? And climate is really at the top of that list. Awesome. Any other other examples before we move into some of the uh, consortium work? Yeah. So, I mean, another example that I think is could be interesting to this group is a company that we work with called Source Global. So they're a company that makes uh, fresh drinking water out of sunlight and air without being wow. connected to grid-tied infrastructure. So what's been really interesting about working with Source is that we funded their first water purchase agreement. So you know the world of power purchase agreements yeah. better than most. <laughs> um, but you know we should be able to apply this same kind of financing mechanism to many other kinds of critical infrastructure. And so we funded their first water purchase agreement with an indigenous-owned community partner actually in Australia. And so proving this sort of business model and the economics behind it was really key to being able to scale the water purchase agreement model around the world. So um, Source is now deployed in more than 50 countries worldwide. And the projects create jobs. I mean, our job, our, our project in Australia created 50 jobs and offset about 100 tons of CO2 per year. So these are major wow. climate solutions as well as water and resilience solutions for you know, commercial applications, remote applications, community applications, as well as potential forward operating base or resilience applications. Yeah, I mean, you, so for folks that are just getting familiar with Elemental, you really started in, in Hawaii, right? And began to expand out beyond Hawaii. First of all, was that just because you wanted to move to Hawaii or was there a reason? <laughs> and then second, you know, your experience there, you know, being in this sort of islanded community, literally, how has that helped you look at scaling companies outside of there? Yeah, so I mean, it's a great question. One of the reasons we were in Hawaii is because it is an amazing canvas to try new things. So right. Hawaii, when we started Elemental in Hawaii in 2009, it was actually one of the few places where clean energy was way cheaper than fossil fuel energy because we were burning oil for power in Hawaii, as we right. do on many islands. Right. And so the economics just penciled out here way before they did on the mainland. And now it's amazing to see sort of the broader clean energy economics catch up. But because of that sort of economic dynamic, we were way ahead on solar, um, even to some extent on electric vehicles, on biomass and other kinds of renewable energy technology. So, for example, in solar, distributed solar is the largest single power plant on the island of Oahu. So it's bigger than our biggest power plant. One third of single family homes on Oahu have solar on them. So if you're actually looking for a place to test technology, like one of our portfolio companies, Fan, that adds resilience for um, individual homeowners and a digital control panel, it's a great place to roll out that kind of technology because it's something that's really needed here from yeah. a technical perspective, as well as you know regulatory and policy support, but it's actually needed physically on the, on the physical infrastructure before it would be other places. So Hawaii presents this really nice case study and canvas for some of those technical solutions um, and then enables us to really learn how to scale them up elsewhere as well. And you built a really interesting ecosystem there of the utilities, corporate partners, philo- philanthropic organizations. I put the Defense Department in there because it's the major footprint of the Navy. You know, what, what have you learned from sort of ex- coordinating or quarterbacking a coalition like that to actually try to get things done? I think that's one of my favorite parts of the job is actually working with all these different stakeholders to get things done. You know, I was living in Washington, D.C. before coming to Hawaii. And one thing I noticed about living in Washington is that people get really specific into a vertical, right? So you're right. really specific into energy. You know everything about energy. 
but it's not as clear or as intuitive to think about how energy impacts education and labor unions right. and water and you know sort of planning and permitting and right. all these other systems that have to intersect with energy to be successful. But then when you live on an island, you can't you know go five minutes without thinking about these other systems and how you're impacting them. So I think that perspective has been really helpful for us in understanding what it really takes to commercialize technology in a real world setting. I mean, this is what makes climate technology so fascinating and so different from scaling, you know, a social app or something on your phone right. or a, a you know software as a service technology. It actually is in real people's communities. It doesn't happen in a back in a vacuum. People have to interact with it and accept it. So that's been, I think, an advantage of being in a community like this. Um, DoD, as you know, is one of our major funders and backers. Has been since the beginning, specifically working yeah. with the Navy and. I think what the Navy has been really interested in, first of all, we have Hawaii's the only place that has all of the services co-located in one place. So we have um, a huge advantage there in terms of having this sort of military presence and coordination. And also our Indo-Pacific Command is responsible for about 51% of the Earth's surface. So securing, you know, communications, wow. land, water, air yeah. um, within 24 hours. So it's a huge responsibility. And one of their key challenges have been sort of energy supply chain and infrastructure across this enormous area. Um, so really being able to connect with and have access to some of the cutting edge technology across these infrastructure spaces is an enormous competitive um, requirement, I would say, out here. Yeah. So for a lot of smaller companies and having been, having served in the Pentagon and then working in Silicon Valley, there is a true lack of understanding of how to even enter that market. Right, because there is a complexity. I think many of the aud- folks in the audience here at the summit are very well aware of, of even trying to get a government contract and having to have the track record. And how do you even get in the door? And realizing it's going to take eighteen to twenty months to get something started, which maybe get done in six months in the private sector. So, how do you coach those uh, companies in your portfolio, for instance, to think about how to approach the federal government or the, the Defense Department in particular? Yeah, I think that consortiums actually like rise and others that have emerged around the sort of the nexus of innovation world or Silicon Valley investment world and DOD have an enormous role to play here. Yeah. Um, one of the things, one of our favorite tools is to move projects in parallel in both. So I, I would just in both the private say, sector and the mm-hmm. public sector. Yeah. 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 And so when, when we've been, neg- when we've been working with Navy and really setting up how elemental works, there was a the recognition that, we would love to do projects within the fence line. There's an enormous amount of value there. But also the recognition that this doesn't often work, as you mentioned, with companies' timelines. And right. so, you know, one, one of our roles has actually been to sort of educate folks within the Navy or within DOD of sort of how company timelines work, right? So they have, they may have raised a series yeah. A, you really have 12 months to show certain milestones and traction, and you are really need to hit those milestones in order to raise your next round of funding. So there's there's a, a time element built into startups. It's not that they necessarily just like always want to go fast because that's how they're built and they just need to always go fast. Actually really built into how the company sort of grows and matures and is financed over time. Right. And so part of it is that education process. But then what the Navy and DOD have done with us is say, okay, let's let's run projects in parallel tracks so that mostly we're funding projects on the commercial side of the fence outside the fence line for the for the DOD and then parallel tracking 
on the DOD side. So that might be something as simple as bringing sort of project managers or base commanders along as we develop scopes and metrics to say, here's the kinds of things we're going to be trying to achieve with this project. Would that kind of thing be interesting to you? And how do we bring you along the learning journey from the very beginning? So it could be as simple as that, or it could be uh, more in-depth, such as going through a cybersecurity sort of protocol and verification process alongside the commercial project. So that when the commercial project is successful, you know, you're already that sort of 18 months along with the DOD. So really trying to think about, think proactively about how to be, how to parallel track projects so as to meet startup timelines while also ensuring that government is there to meet them when government is ready and really wants to take advantage of the technology. Yeah, I, I'm going to go to that, the second part of that, your, your answer to, you know, oftentimes there's a, an attitude within uh, the federal government is this is the way we operate and you got to fit into this box, but that doesn't always work for, for innovation. So, you know, as you're educating back towards the government side, what are some of the biggest obstacles that you've seen them have to try to overcome or understand? And for instance, like, the, for instance, understanding the funding timeline, right? Like startups don't just move fast because they need to move fast. Sometimes they move fast because they only have limited money <laughs> to prove their concept and grow to the next stage. And they need to have a market, you need to have an off-taker, for instance, on a project to, to prove they can raise that next round. Like, what are some of those big obstacles that, you know, folks on the government side need to understand uh, so they can really tap the front end of innovation? I, mean, I think there's a few. One of the bigger obstacles that we've seen is that is the way the services are staffed, particularly on the ground here. So, you know, they're designed for a certain level of turnover and people have their posts for a certain amount of time. So that can be really challenging. As you say, you know, it takes right. quite some time to get this product up and running. And then often by the time you kind of get to the altar, your champion is on to the next post. Right. Um, so that means it's really important to sort of develop relationships up and down the, the line. But it also means one of the things that we found to be most effective is to set out the metric for success on the DOD side really clearly and in writing early. And then as, as new people kind of come in and socialize in, you have sort of a really clear briefing history and, and kind of a history of what's happened with the project, what we're trying to achieve, where we are in the timeline. And you can really get the new folks to start to champion and, and kind of lean into what, what it is you're trying to achieve. So I think some of that clarity is what we've learned from, from projects that frankly haven't gone that well because we've lost our champion in the middle. The project was a little right. bit murky and kind of being co-developed, you know, in a really organic way over time, which is a really natural way to develop these projects. Um, then we lose a lot of momentum trying to recreate that that organic collaboration. Yeah. Interesting. In what role do you see the Rise Consortium sort of playing now in that ecosystem and helping to move some of these uh, these concepts and these innovative uh, solutions forward? I think the main thing that I've heard from sort of up and down the administration and the Hill is you know, a huge amount of desire to work on this. I mean, exemplified by the fact that Secretary of Defense has four key senior advisors. One of them is in climate. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge sort of top-down push, right? Um, but that what we've heard up and down the, the administration is the need for really clear proof points. And so I think that's one place where RISE could play a really helpful role is to say, Here's some things that we've found that are working well. Here's how we know that. Here's how we've measured it. Here's 
where there's stakeholder buy-in around this, which as you know, you know, both inside the fence and outside the fence is so important for, for DOD to know that. Right. Um, so I think that's one of the really key elements that RISE can play. I think the other is around demystifying some of the technology. So, you know, it's a little bit like cybersecurity was 10 years ago. People have been talking a lot about cybersecurity today. It's a huge element of resilience. I sort of see climate as the next wave um, of, you know, where we were with cybersecurity 10 years ago. I think that's where we are with climate now. And you think about sort of the enormous need to clarify and demystify the cybersecurity space over time and figure out exactly what it is we're looking at, what we need in terms of technology. That's kind of where I feel like we are with climate. So that's the other place that I see consortiums like RISE can be so helpful in in clarifying and demystifying it. Yeah, I think that's not only a need within the federal government, there's a need within the private sector as people are really starting to accelerate. I I think about climate a lot as the, explain the, the, the scene in the matrix when all of a sudden it slows down and you start seeing the code until you get that, like you don't understand how climate touches everything. But once you do, you begin to understand the, all the interconnections of it. If you look at the last 10 years of this industry that we care so much about, it's really been sort of setting the table and putting the building blocks together for you know what is, I think, going to be a really dramatic decade of change ahead of us. What are you now looking for in your next set of companies that excites you about us being able to sort of sol- solve the climate crisis? Like what, what are some of the verticals that you're really interested in pursuing? Yeah, that's a perfect time for that question. We have just been going through due diligence and looking at hundreds and hundreds of companies and the new wave of innovation. And over the last few years, we've diligenced over 5,000 companies. That's amazing. And so it's funny now to look at and say, okay, well, here comes another few hundred. And you know, every year I'm sort of like, oh, are we going to see like the same things we saw last year? And what, you know, is it going to kind of like feel a little bit like rinse and repeat? And it doesn't at all. And oh, it's wow. incredible to sort of see the level of like creativity and things that you've never heard of before coming through the door. So that's like something that definitely gives me hope for the next 10 years and just think about uh, sort of the new talent coming into the space, diverse lived experiences that are bringing kind of solutions I wouldn't have thought of. So I would say one of the, a couple of the areas were really, I would divide them in, you know, it, especially for this conversation into two categories. Like one is around sort of climate mitigation um, and environmental solutions there. And the other is around risk and, and climate risk. And we're seeing huge movement from both the private sector and the public sector in both. I think there's, you know, a real understanding that there's, they're, they're different and there's an enormous need for both. So I think on the sort of kind of on the mitigation side, some of the things I'm really interested in, we're investing in some companies that are doing really interesting work in carbon. Um, so a few years ago, invested in a company called Carbon Cure that sequesters carbon into concrete. Concrete is the most abundant man-made material wow. on the planet. So focusing on some of these big markets and big problems is, is one of areas focused for us. So that's something I'm really excited about. And other solutions to utilize carbon in ways that are economically feasible. Uh, we're not, we haven't yet seen that in the direct air capture space that we're, where we're investing, but we've seen it in Opus 12 and carbon to chemicals. We've seen it in carbon cure and carbon to concrete and other really creative ways to utilize carbon in economically feasible ways. Also in that space, really interested in the apparel space. That's about 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. And fast fashion is an enormous um, contributor to sort of both material waste and other environmental challenges, landfills, et cetera. So 
Uh, there's some amazing solutions coming up in that space as well, sort of science-driven solutions, like a company called Evernew that we've invested in, um, as well as marketplace solutions, like a company called Thrilling that we've invested in. So you can like basically shop from any secondhand and consignment store online. Oh, so kind of bringing, bringing that whole brick-and-mortar world into the cyber world. So those are a couple of things I'm really excited about. And then on the risk side, you know, looking a lot at, at Fire, at Coastline, at um, technologies that are thinking uh, or entrepreneurs that are really thinking about how to manage risk on the climate side um, and finding customers that really are leaning in and willing to pay because they've seen what happened in Texas. They've seen what happened in California and it's really hit the bottom line. Yeah. So I usually end, well, first of all, let me ask before we get into the last question, uh, just from a process perspective, companies interested in, in you know, submitting ideas to you, obviously going to the website, elementalaccelerator.com for sure. But just talk quickly about the process as, as you look at some of these opportunities. Yeah, so Elemental, we've, we've created an open process, as you said. One of our um, goals and one thing we're really interested in is how to lift up new talent into this space. And so one of the things we're really interested in is how you democratize access to capital and to networks yeah. that provide capital. So we have an open application process that's on our website once a year. With those companies, you know, we only select a, a couple percent of the companies that come through our funnel, but we also serve those other companies in many other ways. So we have um, a portal on our website, basically an AI-enabled matchmaking platform that connects investors in our network to companies in our pipeline that we think are ready. Mm. So we've started uh, building out a Was number like a of tools. Yeah, yeah, it's like an, an AI introduction engine. So it doesn't yeah. necessarily say to everyone in the world, this startup is raising, which is not something they usually want. Um, but right. creates curated introductions based on what investors are interested in and when startups are raising. Oh, that's um, yeah. So we've we've tried we've been trying to bring forward a number of platforms um, that support not only our portfolio companies and the deep work we do with them, but really um, broaden out access to capital um, and ensure that some of the investors we work with can can take a look at companies that may not be as well connected um, yeah. or sort of the typical recipients of their capital. So lots of uh, benefits to kind of getting into the system beyond the, the direct work we do with our portfolio companies. And the same is true for our corporate partners. So we recently announced um, Amazon's Climate Pledge Fund as part of our scale-up program. And we work with 25 other very large utilities and corporate partners. And one of the things that we are really committed to is uh, connecting companies that we see at any stage, at any time of their growth to corporates that we think could be great customers or other partners for them. So last question, I usually ask about people's personal careers, but I'm going to switch this up because you would work with so many entrepreneurs and so many, you've touched base with so many CEOs across such a breadth of companies. Is there a piece of advice you'd want to put to those entrepreneurs out there about uh, what they should, you know, how they should be uh, thinking about growing their company or, uh, you know, approaching, uh, addressing climate change? I think it gives me an opportunity to share something that I'm really excited about that we're going to be launching later this year, which is our equity field guide. So oh, awesome. one of the things that we've been working on over the last number of years is how to support entrepreneurs at any stage in their journey in building equity into their companies. So both equity in, how do you think about hiring and retention and your supply yeah. chain, and also equity out. How do you think about the impact you're having on the communities that you're working with? And so we've been working on this for four years with our portfolio companies and developing a lot of tools to support entrepreneurs. You know, it looks really different for a company that's five people or ten people compared to you know the big corporates who are doing this kind of you know diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And so, what we've really 
zeroed in on is how do we develop that for startups and build it into the DNA early. So we're going to be launching that later this year. I think this is a a gating issue for any entrepreneurs to figure out how to solve this, how to build it into their culture in a way that's authentic to them. Um, And we're really excited about supporting the broader entrepreneurial community in getting there. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, what incredible work you're doing. For for the broader audience, uh, it's important to note you guys are also hiring. So I'm going to drive you to the uh, elementalaccelerator.com website, which will have links from the Clean Capital website. Uh, Some amazing opportunities for folks to get involved in the mission and be part of the team. Uh, I want to thank the team at Rise. And for folks who are interested in the consortium, you can go to www.rise-consortium.org. Again, we'll link to it from the Clean Capital website. Don, thank you so much for the fascinating conversation. Thank you. And thank you both for the amazing work that you're doing. Really grateful to be part of the crew. And thanks to uh, Adair and Mike and the team at Converge. Um, and uh, of course, our producers always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.